All right, welcome to Blackhawk Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team here uh, at Blackhawk Church. Uh, welcome to those of you who are with me here in this uh, room at our Brader Way site. And welcome to those of you who are watching on a screen, either at another venue here at Brader Way, or maybe you're watching on the screen uh, at Fitchburg at Savannah Oaks Middle School, or those of you who are watching on a screen at the Upper House at Blackhawk Downtown. Or maybe you're watching uh, on a screen in your own uh, house or uh, at a apartment or a dorm room because uh, you're watching online. So greetings to those of you who are in Miami or Minneapolis or even Marion, Indiana. So welcome to all of you. And you, if you are part of uh, our Blackhawk Chinese ministry, Dijon, Zimeping An, or if you do not uh, speak uh, Mandarin, uh, that, that means peace to all brothers and sisters. Today we are continuing in our series as we go through the book of Mark. And uh, I'm just uh, loving uh, this series. And uh, we're calling this series uh, Unexpected. So uh, this is the sixth in a series of 23 messages. And we have a lot to cover today in the book of Mark. So I'm just going to ask everybody, wherever you're at, just go ahead and grab uh, your Bibles, either the digital version or your paper version, and go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, and we'll just jump right in uh, to the passage. What uh, Mark has been doing is trying to demonstrate the fact that uh, Jesus uh, knows how to make enemies, basically. (laughs) So uh, the people who uh, should be on the inside, the religious elite, uh, they are finding themselves on the outside. And the people who uh, uh, you would think are on the outside, the kind of the riffraff, you know, kind of people who probably don't even know how to read and they don't know much theology, those people are actually on the inside and they are becoming his followers. And uh, the non-religious people, they just love him. They just flock around him and uh, he doesn't even have room to breathe. So many of those people are around him. But the religious types, they don't want anything uh, to do with him. So we're coming to a place now in Mark's uh, gospel where uh, those people who should be on the outside, uh, he's saying, no, you're the ultimate insiders. And he gathers a number of people to follow him, and we call them the 12 disciples. Mark chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside, and he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed, what's that number? that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the, what's that number? These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. All right, let's stop there. As with all the other passages we go through in the book of Mark, there's a lot of, there's a whole sermon we could do right there about the diversity of this group of people. They're not like a law. Simon the Zealot, Matthew's the tax collector. These two people normally hated each other. He gathered all kinds of people, a very diverse group. But what I want us to focus on is the fact that Jesus is being very intentional here by choosing, how many people does he choose? Twelve. 
Why 12? Well, if you know anything about Jewish history, 12 is a big deal. And what Mark is clearly showing as we go through the book of Mark is that Jesus is like the Messiah who's living out what Israel should have been doing. So 12 is very intentional. He just didn't pick some people who were standing around. He's looking for 12. Because a long time before this, 2,000 years before this, uh, God chooses one family from whom he will rescue all of the human race. And that family is led by a person named Abraham. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jacob has how many sons? 12 sons. A famine comes to Israel, and then those 12 sons and their families go into the country of, what's the country they go to? They flee into Egypt. 70 people in all flee into Egypt. While they're in Egypt, they become slaves to the Egyptians, but the nation grows and grows and grows. They're there for 400 years. God raises up a very unusual leader to lead them out of Egypt. His name is Moses, Moses leads them right to the brink of the promised land, but Moses doesn't lead them into the promised land. Who's the guy that leads them into the promised land? What's that guy's name? Joshua. And soon as Joshua crosses the Jordan River, they divide into 12 different sections. So uh, you might, have, to keep track of everybody in Israel, you, you, you kept track of like who you were from, from those 12 sons. So you might be a descendant of Dan, you're in the tribe of Dan. You might be a descendant of Judah, you're in the tribe of Judah. You might be in the descendant of, but you follow me. So Joshua leads, is, leads all of Israel, the 12 tribes, and they establish 12 different little precincts. Jesus now is coming in to this planet, and he is establishing like the new kingdom of God. So he establishes 12 different followers of his. He's like the new, who would you say? He's the new Joshua. Well, that makes sense because, well, what's his actual name? Yes. Remember what Pastor Charles said on the very first day. A Jesus is not his name. Jesus, everybody, wake up, okay? Jesus, J-E-S-U-S, that's English. Sorry to spoil your fun, but that's English. They didn't speak English in Galilee, okay? They spoke Hebrew, Aramaic. What was his, if you say, hey, you don't, Jesus, he wouldn't, he wouldn't turn, tur well, he's God, so he knows what you're talking about. <laughs> but here, look at this slide before I get in more trouble. The classical Hebrew Aramaic, Yeshua, Yeshua, that's translated, our New Testament is written in Greek, so it's translated by the authors into Jesus, and then the English translation of the Greek is Jesus, the English translation of the Hebrew is Joshua. Joshua. His name is not Jesus. There's no J sound in Hebrew. You got it? Yeshua. Yeshua is his name. Joshua. Oh, that's an accident, right? No, 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 no. He's the new Joshua, and he's establishing a new.
kingdom. Or from last week's message, he's new wine. And you put new wine in new wineskins. You put new wine into old wineskins, he's going to blow it up. And he's blowing up the old system. That's what's going on here. So these disciples, they're like the ultimate outsiders. But he just made them insiders. The 12. Oh my gosh. They're like the riffraff. Most of them probably can't even read. They're fishermen. They're like ordinary people. They could be in a biker gang. Sons of Thunder. I mean, that sounds like a biker gang. <laughs> hey, you guys, I'm going to call you the Sons of Thunder. <laughs> when I look at you, I just think, wow, you've got rough people right here. They're just normal people. So what Mark is doing, it's very intentional here, you guys. Remember, it's not chronological. He's intentionally putting these things together. Now, what Mark is going to do is saying, he's basically saying those who should be on the outside, they've become the ultimate insiders. And now those who should be the ultimate insiders are in danger of becoming outsiders. And the way Mark does this is with a literary device. And if you're a New Testament scholar, you know all about this. Uh, he, uh, he's famous for this. The other gospel writers don't use it. And in order to explain this little literary device, I need a prop, and I've decided to use uh, this as a prop. Oreo uh, cookies, and I will uh, hold up one right here. We don't have a slide of Oreo cookies because we kind of figured everybody knows what an Oreo cookie uh, is. If you're not aware of what an Oreo cookie is, let me be the first to welcome you to the United States of America. <laughs> So awesome. You, after this message, you need to go to a store and buy a bunch of these, or better, buy the ice cream, the Oreo cookie. That's the, that's the die for. Okay, all right, stop, stop, stop. Nabisco, um, you, you, you're going to have to buy this because you don't, don't believe me, it calls this a sandwich. Nobody calls it a sandwich except the people who own these things. Chocolate sandwich cookies. Chocolate sandwich cookies. So the literary device that Mark uses is a sandwich. Now, New Testament scholars don't refer to it as a sandwich, although I think they should. They call it an intercalation. If you're taking the course, that I, I would say you need to remember that name, but you're not taking a course, so just think of a sandwich. The Nabisco people took a, a chocolate cookie and they split it in half, and then they inserted in the middle, that's where intercalation comes from, this white uh, substance, this which is to die for. And that is their sandwich. But the whole cookie is one kind of a unit. But what Mark is going to do is going to take a story about people who should be the ultimate insiders, and he's going to intentionally split that story in two, and then he's going to insert a story about something that's completely different. But what they all have in common is both of these groups. The top, the bottom, one group, and the middle, another group. Both of these groups should totally be insiders, but they're in danger of becoming outsiders. The first group that should be insiders is his family. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Does that sound familiar, Mark 1? Wherever Jesus goes, man, there's all these people around him, normal people. 
when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, what's that say? He's, and that phrase, he's out of his mind, translates a Greek phrase, which means he's out of his mind. <laughs> his, hand, his family heard about this, so the implication is that they're not there. Probably in Nazareth, he's in Capernaum. They heard about this, and they say, oh, man, we got go, to go get him. Because he's, he's crazy. He's like, he's, he's out of his mind. We need to like take charge of him because he's like, he's just not himself. These are the ultimate insiders, okay? Verse 31, we'll find out his mom's there. These are the people who, my gosh, they should know Jesus. They grew up with the guy. And they think He's, what's the phrase? I didn't hear you. Who thinks he's out of his mind? His family. Ultimate insiders. That's the top chocolate half of the cookie. Now we go to a different group. Completely, not like the chocolate half, completely different group. These people, they should totally be insiders. But they're not. The scholars from Jerusalem. Verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. This is a completely different group of people. This is not his family. It's not the dark chocolate now, it's the white inner layer. It's the middle part of the sandwich. But they're also ultimate insiders. These aren't Pharisees, you guys. Pharisees are lay people. These are scholars. These are people that know Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible, more than you can possibly fathom. These people are brilliant. They have memorized the Torah. These people are like, what? And when the Messiah shows up, they say that what he's doing is by the power of who? Beelzebul, who's that? that's the prince of demons, that's Satan. The Messiah is due, the Messiah, who they want to come back, he shows up, and then they say, yeah, that's of Satan. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The ultimate insiders, they are outside. They don't get it at all. Jesus responds to them with ridicule. Verse 22. So Jesus called them over to him. I just would love to be in that room. Hey, hey, you guys, come over here. Come over here. And began to speak to them in parables. <laughs> how, how can Satan drive out Satan? <laughs> if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. This is ridiculed, you guys. What are you guys? What, 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 what? I'm casting out demons right and left. Oh, yeah, sure, Satan's doing that. That's ridiculous. That would be like Satan committing self-suicide. He's not against himself. And, and you see, when I'm casting out all these demons, I, yeah, that's ridiculous to say a house divided against itself can't stand. You guys are really strange here. And then he continues, 
And uh, he likens himself to a robber or a thief. Verse 27. In fact, uh, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Who's the strong man in this story right here? Satan. The whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. Jesus has come and has invaded Satan's territory. Satan's the strong man. No one can enter until until he, he ties up. He binds up Satan. That's what he's done. He casts out these demons. They're afraid of him. I'm like a plunderer or somebody who comes into a strong man's house. I bind him up. I'm binding him up. <laughs> now I can move around his house. I love it when Jesus likens himself to a, like a plunderer or a thief. He just throws people for a loop. Verse 28. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this. Why? Because they were saying, say that out loud. Whoa. Why did he say that? Because they said he what? Has an impure spirit. All right. This is radical. And let me just talk a minute, like as a pastor, let me pastor the room, because Many people, if you've grown up in church world, have heard about the unforgivable sin and stuff like that. And this is like Pastor 101. You don't have to be a pastor for a year before somebody comes to you and says, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. It's very common. So if you've cursed Jesus or if you've said, I want nothing to do with Christianity or something really horrible like that, uh, usually you're afraid you've committed the unpardonable sin. So let me just talk about what is this unforgivable, unpardonable sin? Let's go to these slides. The unforgivable sin. All of Jesus' miracles were done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Somebody say amen. Amen. All right, second. His enemies said he performed miracles by the power of an impure spirit. Look back at the text. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. That's why, th- that's why they said, you know, he- he's of Beelzebul. He has an un- impure spirit. Three. That is why Jesus said they were blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Do you guys, are you following me? Number four. Jesus said this is the only unforgivable sin. Look at the text again. Truly I tell you people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They've committed guilty of an eternal sin. So, if you can see Jesus by the power of the Spirit actually cast out a demon and you say to Jesus, you're doing that by the power of Satan, that's the unforgivable sin. But since Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of God the Father... We can't actually see him do that. I don't think it's possible to actually commit the unpardonable sin anymore. It's something that could happen in Jesus' day when you said Jesus and the spirit that he's working with, that's all of Satan. So relax. I don't think you've committed the unpardonable sin. You have to understand that no matter what you have said or no matter what you have done, 
God's grace is bigger than any sin you could commit. And if you confess your sins, as 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from just about all unrighteousness. No, it doesn't say that, does it? From all unrighteousness. God is a forgiving God. And most of the people that have come to me, they're crying because they say, Pastor, I think I've forgiven. Okay, no. Just your heart right there shows me that you really feel bad about what you have done. So let's just talk about it. Let's ask God to forgive you. And God is more than willing to forgive you of the sin that you've committed. How are you guys doing with that? All right. I didn't, I didn't hear any amens from that at all. You guys okay with that? Yeah, okay. The problem with this passage is that it's so powerful that people skip over the whole context and they forget what Mark is actually trying to do. Mark is about the Oreo cookie here. This is an inter, intercalation, the inside. Now he's about ready to move to the outside of the cookie. And what all these people have in common is that they should be insiders. Totally. But they're in danger of becoming outsiders. Let's look at his mom, verse 30, 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing, what's that word? Whoa, outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him. We're familiar with that, right? All these people. They told him, your mother and brothers are, what's that word? Outside, looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is drawing a line here. He's redefining family in the kingdom of God 2.0. He's blowing up things. He just redefined the family. How you doing with that? Did you see the text? Look at the text. Who are my mothers and brothers? Then he looked around at those seated around here, my mothers and brothers. And he's not looking at Mary and his brothers and sisters. He's looking at the riffraff all around him. Why are they his mother and brothers? Because they are, what does it say? Whoever does God's will is my mother and brother and my sister. Whoa, 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 whoa. In kingdom of God 1.0, you became a part of the kingdom of God if you were Jewish. You are born into it. You're born into it. You're of the tribe of Dan or Judah. They, you're part of the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God 2.0. No, 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 no. It doesn't matter who you're born into. It doesn't matter if you're physically related to Jesus. You choose. You choose. You have to make a decision. Do you want to follow him or not? Let me make a couple of comments and then some lessons for our lives. First comment is this. 
I don't think doing God's will means you have to be perfect. Why would I say that? Look who's in the room with him. They're just like normal people, you guys. They're just normal people. What would those people understand by his phrase, whoever does the will of God? Well, they're there because they are what? They are following him, right? They're following him. It doesn't mean they're perfect people. They believe that he's the Messiah. Do they believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead for their sins? The answer is, I didn't hear you. Come on, you guys. No. Why don't they believe that? It hadn't happened yet. What are they doing? They're following him. They're following him. And his mother and brothers and sisters, are they following him? The answer is no. They think he's they think he's crazy. They're not. They're on the outside. They're the ultimate insiders. They're in danger of being on the outside. They need to make a decision whether or not they want to follow him or not. Second comment I would make, I don't believe Jesus is dishonoring his mother. Many people read this and go, oh my gosh, he's dishonoring his mother. I don't believe that. I don't believe Jesus ever breaks any of the commands in the Bible. The fourth command of the Ten Commandments is honor your father and your mother. I don't believe he broke that, actually. I think he's showing tough love, actually. I know what he's saying is hard, but I think he wants his mother to make a choice, his brothers to make a choice, and to repent, actually, to change their mind about who he is, and actually believe in him, and start to follow him. All right, some lessons for our lives. First lesson uh, for our life is this. Jesus is drawing a line. The kingdom of God takes priority over anything else. It takes priority over anything else. How do you form your identity? What's your way of forming it? Is it family? Is it race? Is it gender? Is it the nation? What's most important to you? Jesus is saying, I'm more important than that. Even if you're in my family. I'm more important than all those things. Where, where's your, where's your, where do you get your identity from? Are you a follower of Christ? He's more important than your family. He is more important than the nation, whatever nation you're from. He's more important than your gender. He's more important than anything else. He's more important. Why is he more important? He's the king. That's why. He's the king. He is top priority. So even if you're in his personal family, uh, that's not good enough. You've got to make a decision to follow him. Now, let me speak uh, for a moment to people uh, who are with me in this room or perhaps people that are watching online someplace or maybe on screen in one of our venues. Those of you who don't want to be watching me right now, uh, you're here because someone has brought you here. And it might be that you're a middle schooler or you're in elementary school or you're a high schooler or whatever. And I'm making a big stretch that you're actually listening to me right now. You might be on one of the devices and doing all kinds of other things. 
even though your parents would like to think just because you're here that you're actually a part of uh, the kingdom of God and they're following Christ, that's not true. That's just not true. And I'm just trying to say that as lovingly as I possibly can. You have to make a choice. You have to make a choice. You don't become a part of God's family because uh, your parents made that decision. You have to make that decision. Now let me speak to all the parents uh, that are in the room. Hey, what do you talk about in your family? <laughs> what do you talk about? This is the kind of thing you should actually talk about. Especially if you all just heard this talk. Because uh, your kids don't become a part of Jesus' family just because they're part of your family. They have to make a choice. Just like Jesus was saying, his brothers and sisters and mom have to make a choice. Your kids have to make a choice. You do talk to them about that. And here's the way not to talk to them. You better decide. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, good luck with that. Okay, that is that doesn't like work. So have a kind of a question answer kind of a thing. And just what you think about the talk today? And then your kid will say, well, you're saying that just because Pastor Chris told you to say that. I'm just saying, get into a conversation. And if they ask you a question about something they don't like about Christianity or they don't believe in the Bible, they don't believe in this kind of thing, just pursue that a little bit. And if they ask you a question and you don't have the answer, here's what you say. You say, I don't know. That's a really good question. Let's pursue that together. It's not the church's job to do that work in your family. Our job is to help you. So if you get asked a question, you don't know the answer, just come to somebody and say, hey, we got this conversation. Do you have anything, any resources? You guys, there's not a question that's going to be asked in your family that hundreds and thousands of other people haven't already asked. What I'm trying to avoid in your family is you get to a place and say, well, just believe, just believe. Your kids want to reason their way and they want to think it through. And we do not want them to think that Christianity is an unreasonable faith. There are good, strong intellectual arguments for why we believe what we believe. But in the end of the day, everyone has to step forward with some faith. But faith is basically, it's not against reason. It's, here's a great, great quote. I love this quote. And it's actually from my son. Faith is reason gone courageous. It acts as if you're at 100% even though you're not. It's what makes up the difference. Uh, my son teaches uh, philosophy at Mississippi State University. And uh, I've always stolen this line from him. And I said, I think I'm going to credit you with that line actually. And he goes, oh, you don't have to do that. I said, no, I'm just going to give you credit for that. Faith is reason gone courageous. If you think, well, I have to have all of the answers, I have to be at 100%, how's that going for you? Good luck with that. Nobody gets to 100%, you guys. We don't live by sight, we live by faith. But it's not unreasonable, it's not against reason. Second lesson for our life. Being confused about what God is doing is part of the journey. How are you doing with that? <laughs> Who's confused about Jesus? They think he's kind of out of his mind. Who's that? That would be 
you know, who's, what's the woman's name? Mary's confused. Oh, that really helps me, actually. Mary. You know, she's the one that, you know, the angel came to her. And the angel, you know, what did the angel say to her? But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over his Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, that's not the kind of conversation you would ever forget. (laughs) You're going to remember that conversation. And the virgin birth, well... You're going to remember that, all right? If there's anyone on the planet who knows that this guy is from God, it would be Mary. And yet she comes and says, well, you know, this is not right. He's lost his mind. She's confused. She's confused. It's like John the Baptist. When John the Baptist gets thrown into prison, he sends his disciples to Jesus. And his disciples have this message from John the Baptist. Here's the message. Uh, Jesus, are you the one or are we waiting for someone else? (laughs) That's from John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the guy, well, he baptized Jesus. That's when the heavens open and the loud voice comes from God and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But then John the Baptist gets thrown into prison and goes, are you the one or should we wait for someone else? That means he's confused. Mary was confused. I'm just saying that being confused is all a part of the journey. For heaven's sakes. If John the Baptist was confused and Mary was confused, psychologically, I think it's kind of healthy when I go, yeah, I'm kind of confused right now. I think that's a healthy move. If you want a God that you can completely understand all the time and everything he does, what you actually want is a mirror or an echo chamber and you completely get everything that's happening here. (laughs) No, 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 no. I actually want a great God. Newsflash, I'm not the smartest person in the world. I would like to have a God who's way smarter than me and has ways that I do not, I say it's like, you know, His ways are beyond our ability to fathom. I want that kind of God. And we have that kind of God. We have this thing called Meet the Dolsons. People come over to our house. And uh, a few weeks ago, uh, at the end of Meet the Dolsons, someone asked me a question in the group. They say, Pastor Chris, do you have any doubts? And before the S hit the word, I said, absolutely. And I think the room was like, well, I don't know. You're like our pastor. You shouldn't have any doubts. Absolutely, I have doubts. I have doubts about the whole thing. Good luck. What? <laughs> I have no problem with that. Look at Mary. Oh, my gosh. She's wondering. <laughs> John the Baptist, what? I'm fine with saying it. I got doubts. Sometimes I'm totally confused. I'm fine with that. In fact, I think it's psychologically healthy, actually. Because God's ways are bigger than my ways. The key thing is this. What do you do when your faith is fragile? That's the key. Do you move away from God? Or do you move back 
toward him, even though you don't completely understand. And we know how the New Testament turns out. When he's hanging on that cross, who's at the foot of the cross? Mary. When the church begins, who's in that little small room? Mary. And his brother James was the leader of the early church. To me, not understanding everything is a part of the journey. For example, what we're going to do in this room and in all the other sites and venues in just a minute or two, we're all going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Do you actually understand what's happening in the Lord's Supper? It's beyond our ability to fathom. It's more than a memorial feast because when we hold the bread and the cup, we're actually participating with an unseen realm. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Therefore, my dear brothers, flee from idolatry. I'm going to come back to that. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give a thanks give thanks a participation, quinonia, in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? The Corinthians were, uh, they were going to uh, idol temples and they're participating in idol feasts. And Paul has explained to them, you know, that idol is nothing. It's just stone. It doesn't mean anything. But there is an unseen reality that's invisible behind it. And when you participate with that thing that you can see, you're actually participating with an unseen evil reality. You know, you should know that because of what I taught you about the Lord's Supper. Because when you hold the bread, the physical bread. This is bread, nothing to it. But behind it, there is an unseen reality of Jesus. And we are actually participating with him. And the blood, it's just a cup, you guys, just juice. But behind it, there's an unseen reality. Now, does anyone really understand that? No, we don't. It's beyond our ability to fathom. And as far as I'm concerned, as a follower of Christ, when I move towards God's, the things of God that I can't understand, it just causes me to worship. So let's all sites and venues go to worship right now. Let me pray. Father, guide, direct, and empower us as your spirit moves in our hearts and in our minds as we participate, as we participate, as we fellowship with the body and the blood of Christ. We thank you, Father, that we have a God, that you are a God that's beyond our ability to comprehend. And we worship you. We pray this in Christ's name and for the sake of his reputation, all God's people said, amen.